Acts 25, um, have you ever gotten into a discussion with someone who is a fan of something that you want nothing to do with? Like, have you ever, like, gotten into a discussion with, like, a Marvel, like, somebody that's, like, real deep into the Marvel Universe or Lord of the Rings um, or, like, even just a sport? <laughs> I was thinking about our conversation. Or thinking about, like, a sport that you don't really like or... Um, or even if you do like that sport, like you and that person are on opposite sides of that sport, right? Like I think the universal DH is such a bad idea. I think pitchers should have to hit whatever. That's fine. It's a conversation for another day. Or maybe just somebody telling you, have you ever had those times where you see somebody and they, they tell you about like this great book they just read or this great movie or this restaurant that this person just really, really loves and they're trying to convince you to check it out, trying to convince you that you should love it too. When you're passionate about something, when you really enjoy something, you want other people to be passionate about it. You want other people to enjoy it as well because you enjoyed it because you want them to also share in that experience and you want your experience to be validated to an experience, to, an ex to a point. You want this shared connection with someone. We do this with so many elements of our lives, but often the least of those is our faith. We as a people are much quicker to tell somebody to catch up and watch all of Ted Lasso before season three comes out rather than to invite them to community group or a Sunday service. Why? How different would our city, how different would our own personal circles of influence and connection be if we were as passionate about sharing the gospel as we are with that new burger, point, burger place we went to that we really loved? Now, I think there are many contributing factors as to why we live this way, but I think chief among them is that we too often as Christians consider the gospel as the starting point. It's, it's the basics. It's the ABCs. And once we know that, we want to move on to other things. When in actuality, the depth and complexity of the gospel, the ever-present reality and influence it has or should have in our lives reveals it is anything but basic. For Paul, the gospel was everything. It was the driving factor of his day-to-day -day interaction and decision-making. As we're going to see in this morning, the reality of the gospel is the centrality of the life of Paul. And it comes through in every opportunity, every interaction, even standing on trial with leaders who could have him killed in a moment. Because for Paul, the gospel changed his life. For Paul, the gospel inspired his life and the gospel strengthened his life. So we're going to jump into Acts 25. I'm going to pray and then we'll get to work in Acts 25. Please bow your heads uh, and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to gather and to worship and to celebrate you and to sing and to lift up our prayers to you and our, our requests and to open your word and hear from you and be challenged and encouraged by you. God, we pray for the kids up in Grace Place. Lord, we pray that they would come to know you, that you would save them at an early age, that they might walk with you for many, 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 many years. God, we pray for our Grace Place volunteers and, and leaders as they teach, as they lead song time, as they answer questions, as they are, are with our kids, that in the way that they lead that ministry, in the way that they serve in that ministry, that their love for those kids, their love even in serving, would reflect you to the kids of our church so that they might see you in the way that our leaders
always interact with one another and with them. God, as we open your word this morning, I, I pray that we would be able to hear from you. Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see what is hard to see. Give us ears to hear what is hard to hear. Give us minds that can comprehend what is hard to comprehend. Give us hearts to believe what is sometimes too hard and too simple to believe. And give us hands and feet to respond to your message this morning. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. We're going to be in Acts. We're going to start in uh, chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you do come, go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about that man, let them bring charges against him. And he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days. He went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul, Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. Let's stop there. So when we last left Paul at the end of 24, Felix was the governor, and he left Paul in jail as Felix was moving on to a new position. Festus has taken up the new role, and he left Paul, and basically Felix said, he's Festus's problem, I'm going to leave him in jail, and so he is stuck in prison. Festus, the new governor, shows up in Jerusalem, and immediately the Jewish leaders are on him about Paul. They have held on to this hate and rage for all of these years. It said it's been two years, over two years at this point that this conflict started, way back in chapter 21. And Paul has been stuck in jail, stuck in prison, stuck in house arrest in Caesarea. And these leaders of the temple have hung on to their hate and their rage against him. And so they have the same plan that they did under Felix they have now. They go to Festus and they say, can you send Paul, do us a favor, send Paul, tell him he needs to stand before us again in Jerusalem, and then on the way, their plan is they're going to kill him. Now, Festus doesn't know about the backstory of hate. He's new on the scene, but he gets there, and he tells the leaders, Paul is in Caesarea. If you want to bring a charge against him, you can join me down in Caesarea and bring those issues up there. That is where he is being held. That's where he will be tried. And so that's what happens, and we basically get a replay of what happened under Felix. The Jews come down from Jerusalem. They bring all kinds of fake and bogus charges against Paul. It says in verse 7, they bring many serious charges against him that they could not prove. So they're throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. 
Paul, again, simply defends himself, saying, I hadn't done anything against the law of the Jews, against the temple, or against Caesar. I'm innocent. They have no proof. Now, we have no record of Paul fighting or arguing or complaining about his situation. He has been in captivity for over two years. Rather, he has stayed a prisoner of the Romans under house arrest all this time, waiting and hoping on the promises of God. Remember, Jesus specifically shows up to Paul and tells him, you will go before kings, you will go and testify me, testify of me in Rome. And Paul has been clinging to that reality and has allowed himself to stay a prisoner in Caesarea. Now, Festus, trying to get a handle on this whole situation, he gives an option to Paul in verse 9. He says, do you want to go to Jerusalem to deal with this trial in the place you're being accused? Technically, that's where you should go. These guys are from Jerusalem. Your beef is with them. Their beef is with you. We should probably do this in Jerusalem, right? I'll be there with you, Paul. I'll oversee everything, but why don't we go there? Festus is just starting out in this new role, and ever the politician, he wants to play nice with the Sanhedrin, with the leaders of the temple. Again, though, it's not an unreasonable idea that Paul, because this conflict started in Jerusalem, should be tried in Jerusalem, but Paul sees through it. He says, no, no, if I go back to Jerusalem, I'm in danger all over again. I'm in Roman shackles, standing before a Roman tribunal. This is where I'm supposed to be. I haven't done anything wrong to the Jews. They keep bringing charges, and there's no merit to them. Paul says, if I'm tried and found to have committed some sort of wrongdoing here under Roman law, then, and that would lead to death, then so be it. If I deserve to die for something I have done against Rome, then I'm fine with that. But if I go back to Jerusalem, there is a real good chance this ends unlawfully. This ends with me dead on a roadside. Paul realizes the situation and the fact that while Felix had been a seasoned politician who wouldn't be swayed or tricked, Festus is new on the job. And if he's willing to give in on moving this trial to Jerusalem, what else would he be willing to give in on? Paul sees that he's only got one out left, one thing he hasn't done yet, and here he plays his final card he has left to play. At the end of verse 11, he says, I appeal to Caesar. Once again, Paul's Roman citizenship coming in handy, as by law, a Roman citizen could appeal to the highest of courts, to the emperor, to Caesar. Festus and the council have no other recourse but to say, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you will go. The best chance of Paul to receive true Roman justice would mean his release and innocence declared by appeal to Caesar. Because for all the things, as we said last week, for all the things about how we tend to view the Romans in light of the New Testament, law and order, was one thing that they held to, one thing that they clung to. And Paul knew that there were no charges that would condemn him. And so he figures if he can go before Caesar, he might be set free. And to appeal to Caesar means to go to Rome, to have an audience with the supreme emperor, to have the chance to preach the gospel to the most powerful person in the known world. But as always with Paul, there are obstacles to cross, namely the obstacle to cross is named Agrippa. In verse 13, it says, Some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Festus. The king Agrippa shows up with his sister Bernice in Caesarea, probably to congratulate Festus on his newly appointed role. Agrippa, his full name is Herod Agrippa II, or Marcus Julius Agrippa, as he called himself on his currency. 
His dad was the King Herod that's mentioned in Acts 12, who had James killed and Peter arrested. He is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the one who slaughtered the babies of Jerusalem in an attempt to kill Jesus. He is also related to Herod Antipas, who Jesus stood before in Luke 23 as part of the plot to destroy and kill Jesus. So the Herodian family has been in conflict with Christians for a while at this point, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Another key element to know is that Herod Agrippa II is part Jewish on his mother's side. His dad was a supporter and friend of many of the Jewish leaders, and he practiced the Holy Day celebrations. He would show up in temple from time to time. His son, likewise, kept somewhat involved with the Jewish community. He ruled over much of the Jewish inhabited land, and one of the many roles that he had was to appoint the high priest. So he knew the Jewish people and the Jewish customs and their way of living and carrying out justice. He was intimately connected and involved in that community. So while in town, Festus uses the opportunity to get Agrippa's take on this whole Paul thing. He basically lays out what happened. He tells Agrippa, look, Paul is this leftover prisoner that I inherited from Felix. The Jews have jumped on me from the beginning. From when I showed up to Jerusalem, these Jewish leaders have wanted Paul dead. He recounts everything that happened and how Paul then appealed to Caesar. The problem, though, Felix or Festus tells Agrippa is that there's no charge. There's no real reason to have this guy in chains, let alone to send him before Caesar. So I don't know what to do with him or what to write as the reason for why I'm sending him to the emperor. I have to send him to Rome. It's part of Roman law. I would be in trouble if I don't, but I don't know what the charges to tell Caesar are. And if I send him without charges, if I send him confusing Caesar, it's only going to look bad on me and it's going to get me in trouble. Agrippa hears all of the details about what has been happening, and he is intrigued. He tells Festus he wants to meet and hear from Paul himself. And so the next day, with all the bells and whistles and trumpets, Agrippa and Bernice show up, and they do so with an entourage of military leaders and political leaders. There's a great crowd gathered for this conversation between King Agrippa and Paul. Now, finally, Paul is brought in, and Festus lays out the situation for everyone so everyone understands what's happening here. And so let's pick it up in chapter 26, verse 1. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Paul, that hand talker. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself have convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. Let's stop there. 
was given a chance to speak on his own behalf and make a defense. And he begins sharing his appreciation for the opportunity to speak before King Agrippa. Paul knows that Agrippa knows the customs. He knows and is connected to the Jewish, the Jewish people. So Paul goes on to share his story. He shares his testimony, who he was before he met Jesus, what happened when he met Jesus, and how he has lived in light of that. Paul shares about the, how the gospel has changed his life because that's what the gospel does. The gospel changes our lives. And so Paul talks about that. He begins at the beginning. He says he is a Jew who grew up in Jerusalem and he was well known. You could ask any of these people who have a, def who have a problem with me and they'll tell you that where I grew up, they knew me and they knew I was so popular. I was such a top of the class that they knew how well I lived as a Pharisee, how I held to the law, how I kept the law, how I stundered under Gamaliel, how I was the top Pharisee of the Pharisees. Any one of them can tell you my reputation preceded me. As I grew and learned, I did so, and I lived according to the strictest of Jewish parties, the Pharisees, the keepers and teachers of the law. In verse 6 and 7, Paul says, look, I'm on trial here. All of this is happening not because I'm some rebel and enemy of the Jewish people and that way of life, but rather because of my hope. Paul's hope was in the promise made by God to our fathers, to the, to the elders, and to the past generations of the Jewish people. The hope that the nation of Israel clung to, the hope that drew them to worship night and day. See, hope in the Bible, specifically in the Greek, is much stronger than it is in English for us. Right? For us, we say, I hope it doesn't snow again. We don't know if it will or it won't. It's just a thing we kind of wish for. It's a thing we really want, but we're not sure if we're going to get it. But hope in the Greek, it's a total assurance. It is a definite certainty. For the Jewish people, they lived in hope. Throughout their history, through wandering in the deserts, through wars and famine and oppression and exile and slavery, whatever it may be, they fixed themselves on the promise of God, on the hope of the Messiah, the confident assurance that God would send one to fix everything, to fix what had been broken, to save and heal and redeem and restore them. Paul says, I have this same hope as these Pharisees and Sadducees, as the same people who are accusing me of things. My hope is the same as theirs. The only difference is I believe that that hope has been fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. Fulfilled not only in his death, but in his resurrection, in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It is the resurrection that is the linchpin of the gospel message. If Christ died and stayed dead, then what hope, what assurance, what confidence does the believer have in him to have eternity with him? Paul works this out further in 1 Corinthians 15. I, you don't have to turn there. I'll turn there for us. Um, I want to read you a, a few verses, and I want you to just hear Paul as he works through the idea of the resurrection um, in 1 Corinthians 15 as he writes to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12, it says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only 
we are all, all people to be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection, if Christ has not been raised, then we are wasting our time in preaching and teaching. Furthermore, Paul says, if there is no resurrection, not only is our teaching pointless, but it's even heretical. With no resurrection, Christians are misrepresenting God because they claim that God raised Jesus from the dead. If he didn't, then we are lying and speaking untruth about God. And if Christ isn't raised, you are blaspheming. And not only that, but you are still stuck in your sins. Anyone who has died, either before Christ or since, they are just dead, perished, gone, forever. That's end. That's it. And if our hope is in a resurrection that didn't actually happen and doesn't exist, then we Christians, Paul says, are most to be pitied. Why suffer? Why endure rejection? Why have we seen thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians lose their lives for the sake of the gospel, refusing to recant, refusing to walk away? Why would they do that? Why take up your cross? Why make yourself the least of all if at the end of the day there is nothing beyond this world? Why not live as many in the world do? Why not fulfill every desire and yearning if this is all we got? Right? We, if, if it really is, you only get one life. Why not just live into it and then we're done? Because we know that's not true. We know that that's not real, but our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus. Because Christ was raised, we can be raised. As though Adam came, as through Adam came death and sin, through Jesus comes life and forgiveness through the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is not a theological concept. It is not just a secondary or afterthought piece and component. It cannot be just a metaphor, a piece of spiritual fan fiction. For it to matter, for it to have worth, for us to be able to place our hope in it, we have to have an actual historical, real resurrection. Without it, we are stuck and dead. Without it, what's the point of all of this? The seriousness and importance and power of the resurrection is why Paul is so adamant about the reality of it. If we go back into Acts, Paul will say in verse 8, Why is it so incredible to think that God can raise the dead? Agrippa knows about the Jewish history. He knows it well. He has studied it. He knows of Jericho's walls turned into rubble. He knows the stories of the battles where the sun stood still and let the Israelites keep fighting longer. He knows about how the Israelites got out of slavery via the Red, split, Red Sea splitting open. He knows about Elijah's battle on the mountaintops of Mount Carmel. He knows about Samson pulling down those columns. The history of the Jewish people is the history of a God intimately involved in this world who can and will act in supernatural ways because he is all-powerful and in control of all things at all times. So why is it so inconceivable that he can raise from the dead when he wants to? But even as he asked that question, Paul says, look, I get it. I was just as opposed to that Jesus of Nazareth, opposed to those who said he had been raised from the dead. I had the authority to imprison them. When they were put to death, I supported it. I punished them. I did whatever I could to make them walk away from their faith. I chased them to foreign cities. I believed that they had to be stopped. 
I believed that they were a threat, so I chased them and I tried to destroy them, even going to other cities like Damascus. And so for the third time here, Paul lays out his story of his conversion. This is the third, and of the three times that Paul tells this story of the, what happened on that Damascus roadside, this is the most detailed account that we get. Paul is walking on this road to Damascus, and a light shines. A light, he says, that is brighter than the sun in the desert. And Paul and everyone with him hits the ground. And then Paul, nobody else but Paul, hears a voice in verse 14. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. He heard a voice speak to him in Hebrew. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. We have heard the first part, but not the second part. Like I said, this is a more detailed account from Paul. A goad is something that a farmer would use with their oxen. Oxen would pull the plows, and a goad is basically a long, sharp stick that you would use to poke the oxen in the back of the legs to get them to move forward. Paul, why are you persecuting me? Pastor David Guzik says it this way. He says, essentially, Saul was the ox. Jesus was the farmer. Paul was stupid and stubborn, yet valuable and potentially extremely useful to the master's service. Jesus goaded Saul, Paul, into the right direction, and the goading caused him pain. Yet instead of submitting to Jesus, Paul kicked against the goad and only increased his pain. Something in Paul, something at this point, even before he met Jesus, something at this point was pressing on his conscience. Maybe it started at Stephen's speech. We know how the words of Stephen lingered with Paul, that years and years later he uses Stephen's speech even to speak at his own trial. Something it happened, something was already stirring within Paul even before he met Jesus in Damascus. Whatever it was, Jesus had appeared and he spoke to Paul, confirming that this was Jesus, in fact, alive. And that he was closely connected, that he had closely connected himself to the Christians and their community. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my people. Saul, why are you persecuting me? To hate or ignore or disregard or avoid the church is to separate yourself from Jesus. Because Jesus identifies himself with his people. For the person who says, I'm a Christian, I just don't like church. I just don't like being with those Christians. You can't separate Jesus from his church. Paul was persecuting Christians. Jesus said, you are persecuting me. Jesus is intertwined with his people. We get more details from the words of Jesus that Jesus told Paul. Jesus tells Paul, get up because there's a purpose in this meeting. Paul, you will be a servant and witness to the gospel. You will go to your own people, to the Jewish people, and you will go to the Gentiles. And I will deliver you from both. Jesus already was giving Paul a glimpse into what his life would be like, knowing that he was going to need deliverance. Paul, I'm sending you to them so that they might have their eyes opened, Jesus says, so that they might be called from darkness and into the light, from the power of Satan and instead to God. Paul, you will lead them to receive forgiveness of sins and a place in the family of God, a place among the many who have already placed their faith in Jesus. 
The gospel didn't just change Paul's life, it inspired his life. It gave his life direction and meaning. This instruction, this revelation, this is why Paul had gone where he has gone and done what he has done and never shrank from the opportunity, seeing every situation as just that, an opportunity. Whether he was in the marketplace or the temple or chained to a guard or in front of an angry crowd or dealing with politicians, Paul knew what he was called to do and who he was called to be. He was to open eyes, to shine light in the darkness and lead people to God and to the forgiveness of their sins. He was to deliver the message that, had been, that he had once been hunting down to destroy. He was to preach the message that the disciples clung to alone and stared in the upper room. He was to proclaim the message that the lepers and the liars and the tax collectors and the lame and the outcasts and the simple and the shepherds, those people who society had said, you're not worth our time, they heard that message and they loved it and they clung to it. This message that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died for our sins and rose again, displaying his absolute power and authority over all existence, so that there is now forgiveness and new life for those who believe in him, both here, now, and in eternity. The gospel, the good news, that is what drove Paul. That is where his hope, his confident assurance was placed. It wasn't a theory for him. It wasn't an abstract concept. It was real, and it mattered. It changed him. It changes everything. And it didn't just change him from the one who persecuted the church to the one who planted churches, but it inspired him to go and be intentional with every interaction, every connection that he had. Does it matter to you? Has it changed you? Have you experienced the life-giving, life-altering reality of the gospel in your own life? That's what Paul says to Agrippa in verse 19. He says, I was not disobedient to this vision. How could I be? So I went to Damascus, and I went to Jerusalem, and I went to Judea, and I went to the Gentiles, and to everyone I met, every group I encountered, I called them to repent and turn to God. Turn away from your sins and run to God. It's a nice idea in theory, difficult in practice. What often happens is that we get convicted of our sin. We, we allow the Holy Spirit to do what he does, convict us of our sin, tell us that this thing we are pursuing is not glorifying God. We get challenged, and then we even acknowledge, you know what, I need to walk away from this. These things are driving me further and further away from God. Then what happens? We start to consider the consequences of our sin. Man, if I bring this to light, if I confess this, if I actually deal with this openly, I'll be rejected. I'll be alienated. I'll be hated. I, I might lose friends. I might lose relationships. I'll lose status. I'll lose influence. Satan convinces us that the work of confessing and repenting costs too much. And so we stay stuck in our sins. Stay, stay, stay stuck in the dark and stuck indulging the sin that is alienating us from God and from others. Brothers and sisters, that's a lie from Satan himself. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Now, if you confess your sins, you bring hidden things to light, will there be consequences to those things? Yes. There are consequences to our actions, but in confessing and coming to light, we are walking closer and closer to God. He is walking with us in those moments. 
He will walk with you. He will give you a freedom and a new life that you never thought possible. An openness and an intimate relationship with him and a new intimate relationship even with your brothers and sisters that you didn't think was possible. Do not give in to the lie that you have to keep your sins hidden and buried or else everyone is going to hate you and it's going to destroy you. There is always more grace. There is always more mercy. There is always more forgiveness. There is always more of God to be had. Walk in the light. This is for all people. This reality, the grace and forgiveness and mercy that is available to everyone, it is why the Jews captured Paul. That's what he says in verse 21. He says, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Because of the many things they didn't like about Paul, they hated the notion that the same salvation was available to all people with no restrictions and no additions. The Jewish leaders, the Jewish temple authorities, they wanted to be special. They couldn't conceive of a way in which they would be saved in the same manner as a Gentile, as one of those unclean dogs. This is why Paul has been in chains for all these years, because he preached the message that said, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what your background is. What matters is your faith in Christ and that the forgiveness of sins is open to any and all people. But Paul is stuck in chains and he does not complain. He doesn't argue or he doesn't condemn his accusers. Rather, Paul declares he has endured all this, all this time through the power and help of God. Paul says the gospel is real, and it matters. It matters here and now. It's not just a, I'll do that later, when I'm older, when the kids are gone, when I'm retired, when I'm on my deathbed, then I'll make right with Jesus. No, it matters here and now. It's for life now. It is the message that the prophets and Moses proclaimed, Paul said, and that message has strengthened and helped him. He says in verse 23, the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. See, the gospel changed Paul's life, and the gospel inspired Paul's life, and the gospel strengthened Paul's life. It fueled him to press on when circumstances were dark. Now, Governor Festus hears all of this, and finally he cuts Paul off. And in verse 24, he says, Paul, you're out of your mind. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul, you've been alone for too long, buddy. He heard Paul say he was happy to stand on trial before Agrippa. He heard Paul say that the dead could come back to life. That this hope in a suffering Christ strengthened him. And on top of all of this, Paul had told Festus he wanted to stay in chains and appeal to Caesar. Paul, you've lost it. If we would have gone back to Jerusalem, this could have been taken care of. You could have been out of these chains a long time ago. But instead, you want to stay locked up and go to Caesar. Paul says, on the contrary, I'm not out of my mind. I'm very clear-headed. You've heard me speak true and rational. He says, the king knows what I'm talking about. This hasn't been hidden away. See, at this point, Christianity has been around for 40-some years. It has swept throughout the known lands. It's no longer just 12 guys in a scared and a locked room. The person and work of Jesus, the testimony of faithfulness of his followers, the sheer amount of people who have put their faith in Christ, it wasn't hidden. Paul says it wasn't done in a corner. It wasn't done in secret. 
We've been pretty vocal. We've been pretty open. And so it's at this point that Paul turns to Agrippa, and in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. He makes his appeal to the king. Do you believe in the prophets? Being a Jew, Paul knew Agrippa knew the scriptures. And if he knew and believed the scriptures, then Paul hoped it would lead him to Jesus. In asking Agrippa this question, do you believe the prophets? He's putting the king on the spot. Remember, there's a large group of a lot of elected officials. Originally, it was Paul who was on trial, but all of a sudden, the focus is on the king. He is on the hot seat. I know you believe, Agrippa. And if you believe, then trust what you know about God and trust what he has revealed through the prophets and through Moses and through these scriptures that you know all too well. Trust what he has revealed points you to Jesus. Trust what the scriptures reveal about the Christ and that they lead you to Jesus and how he fulfills every prophecy, how he fills every role, how he was his public and known ministry is the fulfillment of the promise of God. That promise that God would send one who would go to war with Satan and sin and death. Jesus fulfilled it. Paul isn't just asking Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He's asking, believe in the gospel. Put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Agrippa. In verse 28, Agrippa responds with what is the biggest mistake in the Bible, the biggest mistake anyone can make. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, will you persuade me to be a Christian? In a short time. Other translations say, I was this close. I'm close, but not quite. You think you can persuade me this quick? Notice he doesn't give a real answer. He just says, do you really think that you've done enough? He doesn't flat out say no. He doesn't flat out condemn Paul. He gives this partial, twisty answer to evade the question. He's clearly a politician. But to evade the question is to evade and avoid the grace and mercy. To stay trapped and condemned in his sins and rebellion against God. You think you could persuade me into endorsing Christianity publicly, Paul? Paul says, yeah, that's my hope. Verse 29, Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for the chains. I think there was a little smirk as he said that. I would hope everyone would put their faith in the God, that everyone would be like me, you know, except for the beatings and the arrest thing. Yes, Agrippa, I pray that you would realize you have sinned against God, that you would realize you need to be forgiven. I pray that you would admit your need for a Savior. Believe that Jesus is God in the flesh who died on the cross and rose from the dead for your sins and choose for him to be your Savior and the Lord of your life. That is the hope for Paul. It is the hope that every Christian has put their faith in, that all would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. The king at this point has had enough. He ends the inquiry. The leaders all leave together and immediately they start to talk about what they just saw. And what they admit to one another is Paul has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. 
As far as Roman law went, Paul should have been let go and gone free a long time ago. And as far as Roman law goes, he should have been let go and let free even in this moment. The king should have been able to do that, but he trapped himself by appealing to Caesar. Paul was going to go to Rome, guilty or not. As we close out our time together, I want to do so with just a few questions for you. Questions I hope that you will wrestle through and answer honestly in your own heads and hearts. Has the gospel changed your life? Has the gospel inspired your life, given you direction? Has the gospel strengthened your life? Can you look at this snapshot of Paul's life and find the places and areas where your life lines up? Now, it's probably not going to be in the beatings and the chains and the arrests. I doubt that there's a whole lot of conspiracies of murder against you. But rather, knowing who you were without Christ compared to who you are with him. How through the gospel, God has changed your desires, changed your hopes, changed your heart. Can you point to the places in your life where you make decisions, where you speak up rather than hide in the shadows, where you make choices and pursue opportunities because of your belief in the life-changing power of the gospel? Has the reality of the gospel led you to put yourself in awkward and uncomfortable situations so that someone else might come to know the love of Christ for themselves? Have you yourself been in a situation when everything seemed out of sorts, everything seemed out of whack, upside down, and out of control, nothing made sense, darkness was everywhere, and you felt turned around and lost? And in all of that, in the discomfort and confusion, were you able to realize and grab on to the life-saving, life-changing, sure and steady rock, the mighty fortress and safe place of the presence of God, and find peace in your soul? Has the gospel changed you? Has the gospel inspired you? Has the gospel strengthened you? If it has, if it is, then tell somebody. When you have it in you, when you have experienced its good and beautiful and helpful life-giving reality, don't hoard it, don't keep it to yourself, don't hide it, don't ignore it. You have great news of great joy for all people. So share it. Step into those moments and opportunities and conversations and relationships that God has orchestrated and identified for you and let someone else know of this beautiful reality that you live into. That God loves them so much that in spite of and even because of their sin, God came to earth to live and die and rise again so that the sin and death and hell and Satan himself would all know and realize that Jesus Christ is in control of all things at all times, that he has the power that rules and reigns forever and ever. That through the cross, through the resurrection, life with God is offered to everyone and anyone who would put their faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin. Now, if you consider these points, you consider these questions, and you say, you know what, no, I, I, I haven't truly been changed. I'm not inspired. And I'm not strengthened. I would press into those questions. Because they might reveal that maybe you haven't actually put your faith in Christ. 
might lead you to question, am I truly a Christian? Have I actually put my faith in him? Have I actually surrendered to him as Lord and Savior? Where are the places in your life where you haven't allowed the gospel to work its way in? What do you need to do to, what do you need to take to God and confess to him and ask for the spirit to do a work in you? Where are the places in your life that say, you know what, God, I've been holding this back and it's time for me to let you have this? Because as we heard in our memory verse this morning, there is an abundant life, an excessive overflowing life offered to you through and by Jesus in the gospel. It's there for you. If you are willing to respond to God's call and invitation on your life, there is abundant life waiting for you. I pray that God would change you and inspire you and strengthen you as you live in light of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for who you are, for your word, for your word that challenges us, for your word that equips us and supports us and leads us to ask questions about ourselves, about who we are, about who you have made us to be, about who you are making us to be. God, let today be a day for all of us to have a, a real, honest conversation with you. To fully examine our hearts, and I know it won't take long, because we know the truth. We know there are places in our lives that we try and cling on to power, and we try and cling on as if we are in control. Reality is, God, it's places we have actually lost control, the places we have given control to things we don't actually want to serve, and yet we still do. God, we ask that you would help us. Help us to take those thoughts captive. Help us to bring to light the things that we have done in the darkness. Help us to overcome the, the fear and the lies, and to find the grace and forgiveness that you offer to us. God, I pray that we would re-remind ourselves, rediscover, re-engage with the gospel every morning, every day. We would be reminded every day of the reality of who we were without you, who we are without you, and who you are making us to be. How you have saved us, even when we were, and when we were definitely in rebellion against you, you saved us. God, as we consider the gospel's effects and in our lives, Lord, I pray that this would be a time where we can respond. You are many things, and you are patient. You have given us today. Help us today, help us in these moments to respond to the truth that you have for us, to respond to the places we need to confess and repent, respond to the places and the conversations and the opportunities you have given to us. 
God, help us as we walk in a life in a world that is dark and messy and broken and hard and exhausting. Help us to find our hope. Help us to find our courage and our strength, not in ourselves, not in what this world has to offer, but rather in the power of the gospel, in the reality of the gospel. God, you have made us to be the lights of the world. Help us to be that through and by our faith in you, leaning on and trusting in the power of Jesus and his resurrection, the power of the resurrection and the power of the gospel. God, we thank you and praise you. Amen.